Okay, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. I'll be reading Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, inspired, and fallible word to our hearts and souls. And Father, I ask that you help me. Help me see and be honest with this text and unfold your word to us through the Apostle Paul in the context that, that we would, by your Spirit, swim in deeper joy of this gospel. As even Bob just prayed for suffering brothers and Sisters who often wake up in the morning thinking from the world's standards I'm destitute and have nothing, but they have you. And they sing, and they sing with joy because of the gospel, because of passages like this. Help us see it, spoiled American Christians, to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Amen. So, after four weeks in this passage, we're going to turn back again to verse 5. Because the significance of this, this ancient hymn, which Paul himself may have written and was known by the church, the significance of it is how he used it. In other words, although this text, as we have seen, and it is appropriate to do so, although, although this text is deeply theological, deeply Christological in the doctrine of Christ, Paul's actual purpose in using it here is not primarily to give instruction in doctrine. That's what they sang. It's what they knew. It's what, he uses it primarily, contextually, to appeal to the Philippian Christians, to appeal to us to follow Jesus' humility and obedience. Verse 5 is the link between verses 1 to 4, if you look at your Bible, and verses 6 to 11. The flow goes something like this. Have this attitude 
of the commands of verses 2 to 4. Have that attitude towards one another, which attitude was also in Jesus. And then he lays out Jesus as the example in verses 6 to 11. In a nutshell, the flow of the passage is this. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves, like Jesus did, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And then the passage isn't over. The next thing is verse 12. Therefore, go on, keep obeying the Lord. Actually, You've got to go back to chapter 1, verse 27, where this larger passage really begins. And it goes all the way down to chapter 2, verse about 18. Look at verse 27, chapter 1, where he begins when he starts to address the church now. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he tells us this is done by standing firm in one spirit with one common purpose in the face of attacks from outside of the church towards you. And then he moves into chapter 2. And also by resisting all kinds of internal divisions among you. Let's just read it. So, so if there is any encouragement in Christ and any comfort from love and any participation of the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love toward one another, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Then comes verse 5, where Paul uses Jesus as the supreme example of self-denial of humility. And thus he urges them, he urges us to adopt towards one another the same attitude which was found in Christ Jesus. And then after he's done that, to the end of the hymn, as we have seen, he's not done, he resumes his exhortation. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's what's so amazing about the way Paul uses this great ancient hymn. His main point is not here to teach doctrine, the doctrines of Christ. His main point is to appeal to Jesus in his earthly journey. 
as the ultimate model of daily living. In other words, when he mentions Christ's death here and the hymn in its context, his focus is not on the saving significance of Christ's death, but rather his purpose is to show what Christ's obedience meant for Jesus. You got to see it. It meant condescension, it meant humility, it meant obedience of self-denial, even to the point of death, even, even the brutal death of a cross. And Jesus' obedience and self-humbling, they're used as the model. Have this mind in you. But overall, Paul uses the hymn, the whole hymn, as the great incentive. To Christians. The great incentive and encouragement to walk humbly with one another. That's why he makes it clear. Verses 9 to 11. Therefore. Christ was exalted. He gave his whole life in obedience to the Father, knowing he could trust the Father. And it will end well. His point is, follow Jesus. His obedience and his humility led to glorious exaltation. Therefore, believers, have this mind in you, which will lead to your true and everlasting happiness. Jesus' exaltation in the context is added there on purpose. Look at the connection for a moment between our passage, chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, Flip over to chapter 3, verses 20 to 24. Paul writes, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His Glorious body. And he'll do this by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So Paul writes, Christians are to know that the power given to Jesus will enable him to transform us into conformity with himself. We shall become like Jesus. And so in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, Jesus humbled himself under God's mighty hand. And therefore, 
And because of that, the Father has highly exalted him. The Philippians and all of us Christians are to be conformed to Christ's likeness in humility. And all of them, all who belong to him, they will be exalted when he transforms them, his people, ultimately into his likeness. Don't miss the flow of the passage. The Philippians are to follow Jesus' example of humility with the goal. The goal of following his exaltation. The pattern is trust the Lord in this. Obey. Live this way which is rooted in the promise of the future. Follow me, the Lord says, because of this promise. Believe the promise and thus follow me. That is the pattern throughout the Bible of what obedience really is that is not sinful legalism. Jesus said in Luke 18, 14, hear the words carefully. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself, like Jesus did, will be exalted. James 4.10 Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. The point is, do you want, particularly younger people in here too, a lot of temptation lay before you in life. A lot of deception. Do you want real, everlasting happiness? Then humble yourselves like Jesus. Now you say, wait a minute, I thought we're saved by grace. Yes, we are. See, the way the scripture and the gospel works is this. Those who are saved are those who are in Christ. And they're in Christ because God did it. Because the Holy Spirit came and changed your heart. You are a new creature. You have new life in Christ. And so the pattern of Scripture is that your new life in Christ, imperfectly, but really, will follow Jesus in humility. 
And you will share with him in his exaltation and glory. Paul writes in Romans 8, 17. If we suffer, suffer with him. Purpose clause. Suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There, There was another well-known ancient hymn that Paul used in 2 Timothy 2.12. And one of the lines simply goes like this. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. That's the incentive. That's the gospel. So why is this important for Paul? Why is it important for us to see what he's doing? It's important because instead of beating the Philippians over the head with, well, you ought to live better, and you ought, you ought, you ought, you ought, you just, why? I don't know, just do it. No. Paul implies that the great incentive for having Jesus' attitude toward self-denial, toward humility, is that we might be glorified with Him and reign with Him. Keep your eye on the prize. Paul thinks this is what makes us in the midst of our battle. He will say in verse 12, right? You've got to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we'll come there. But, but this is what makes us want to humble ourselves and put down our sinful flesh that constantly rises and live a life of repentance and to be obedient. For some, none of us in here as of yet, but to even be obedient to the point of a humiliating death. Many have followed that path. Because they saw following Jesus. God is trustworthy. The exaltation that is laid out in the future, beyond this world, is worth my life. See, even the writer to the Hebrews in that great sermon puts up, just like Paul does, Jesus as the example. Look, look to Jesus in His humanity, in His love, in His humility. And this is how the writer to Hebrews says it in chapter 12, verse 2. Look to Jesus. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. And he lays them out as an example, like Paul does in Philippians 2. So watch the example. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy, that's verse 9 to 11 in Philippians 2, the exaltation. For the joy that was set before Him, Empowered him to endure the cross, despising the shame. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There is nothing more righteous or more holy than to sell everything you have and lay up treasures in heaven. When you act from the motive 
of I am so desirous of gaining more of Christ. Nothing honors God more than that. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and he covered it up. And then, in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has. And he buys the field. Now, at that point, if someone says, no, no. You should just obey the Lord Jesus because he is Lord. You should not obey him because of any prize at the end or incentive. Well, I would totally agree. He is Lord. We have been seeing this for four weeks. He's the creator of the universe. He is Yahweh. And His Lordship actually demands that we obey. No problem with that. Absolutely. But are we not allowed to consider what kind of a Lord He really is? Human history is filled with examples of lords and kings and rulers who were despots. And, and often we gather together and incite a revolution to throw them off our backs. Yes, he's Lord. But does not Jesus want us to know what kind of Lord he is? He is merciful. God sent His Son to die for us and to rise. He sent Him to save us. Why did He do that? Because He always desires to glorify by bringing to himself those whom he has chosen into his glory promised at the resurrection and thus unto eternity to enter into the joy of the master that's not just a result that might happen. It's not how Jesus presented himself. He said, do you want this? Then obey me. Come to me. He has no problems with putting a carrot out in front of you and say, God is the prize. Do not, and thou shalt not, and thou shalt not this. It's not because he's a killjoy. It's because he's a lover of souls. And he longs for thee. 
eternal everlasting happiness of those who are his. So when someone says, well, yeah, he died, but mm, wait, he did die so that he would be your satisfaction, right? Well, yeah, but it's true. Even, even St. Augustine, you know, said, said God created us for himself, for his glory, and our souls are restless until they rest in him. And then I just say, that's all I'm saying. That's the Bible. No, 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 no. We, should, no, no, no. we shouldn't obey because we can get the rest or the happiness. Well, all right, you can stick to that. I'm going to stick with a Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. Because he who comes to God must believe that, number one, that he exists, and must believe, secondly, that he rewards those seek him. I was first introduced to this C.S. Lewis quote back in Dan Fuller's class in 1993 from Lewis's sermon, The Weight of Glory. He writes, the New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We, we are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing? Lewis goes on. I submit that this notion has crept in from Immanuel Kant and the Stoics and has no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're just half-hearted creatures fooling around with alcohol and sex and ambition, when all the while infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making Mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. End quote. That's the structure of the Bible. The command, come unto me. The promise. And I will give you rest for your souls. It's called obedience. Coming out of a heart of faith that believes him. It's what faith is. And that's why Paul then, back to Philippians 2. That's why as putting Jesus as an example doesn't stop at verse 8, but verses 9 to 11 are there. And therefore, 
And because of Christ's obedience, because of his humility, in response to that, God has highly exalted him. Paul puts it there, just like the rest of the scripture, as the desirable motive that stirs the Christian to follow Jesus' frame of mind. Have this attitude in yourselves concerning humility, the way you treat others, the way you look at them as more important than you in that context when your flesh screams, me first. See, if a person says, no, 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 I don't need a motive of what God will do for me, I'll just be humble. I'll just obey that and be loving and I'll be humble, totally disconnected from any positive motivation that would show how prized and good and giving God is to me. That person is wide open to legalism, to pride, to arrogance, And look what I did in my self-denial. Strange how this can work. When Jesus warned that discipleship means self-denial and crucifixion, what did he do? He, He went straight forward and consoled his disciples with the promise. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's, will save it. If he doesn't mean to motivate, then I don't understand language. When he commanded them to leave everything and to follow them. Follow me. He assured them that they would receive a hundred times more in this life with persecutions. And in the life to come, eternal life. Christian living, Christian obedience is not just suck it up and just do it with total disinterest whatsoever of any good that would come to you from God. It's not. The Bible is filled with promises which are not tacked on as "Eh, could be a result maybe. They're there to motivate. To motivate. Trust. It's, God's mercy is so beyond anything. That's why we, 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 our minds have a hard time getting around it. That really? You really did come not to be served? but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. You really aren't stingy and selfish and you want to hold back yourself who who is God and the joy that you you are as Holy Trinity, but you want to share it. Our human minds have a hard time with that. But thank God by the Holy Spirit not left to ourselves for he has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying Abba Father 
those times when no one's around, it's not a public prayer, you're by yourself and you catch yourself praying. Father, pinch yourself. How merciful God is to you. Jesus says this in Luke 6.35. Just listen to the Lord. Love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. Yes, we should never be motivated by horizontal worldly praise. We've all been on the other side when someone did us a good and we realized, oh my gosh, I can just feel it now. They think I owe them back. We don't want to be that to other people. Jesus is saying, don't do that. But in that little line there in Luke 6, 35, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. That last line is the strength to suffer loss in the service of loving others. Jesus he said in Luke 14, 12 to 14, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and you will be blessed. Because they cannot repay you. It's not done. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Do not do good deeds for worldly advantage. But do them for eternal spiritual. And so, we will be moving on from verses 5 to 11 next week. But so that we don't miss it then. This is what it's saying to us. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. In other words, have this mindset right there, which is the same mindset that was in and motivating Christ Jesus who humbled himself because God then exalted him.
Do you want to pursue real, everlasting joy? Do you really care about yourself long term? Then this passage to the believer about how to walk humbly, serve with the promise of exaltation. It's a, this is the, the mandate, therefore, to, when we get to verse 12 next week. Yeah! Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because it is He who works in you both to will and work. Take up your crosses and follow Jesus. Don't seek to exalt yourself. You can trust Him. You can trust the promises of God as Jesus did. It is the promise or the promises in Scripture throughout the Gospels, throughout the epistles. It is the promises that God gives to us that are the gasoline that empower us to obey. Be humble. It's the power for us constantly to repent. Pursue more of God. It's the promises of the gospel, not the false gospels that go around saying that if you come to Jesus and you believe hard enough, you'll get the car, everything will work out great, your marriage will be perfect, or your children will be just peachy keen. It's the gospel of eternal life. It is the promises that that, that because God also called them to this. Don't miss here, because this happens in every Christian life. But, but, but it is the promises that have, have led so many over the last two centuries, particularly before airplane travel, to leave the comforts of America and England and say goodbye to family and friends and all that they knew and spend years in school and then leave and waste their life in some obscure village decades as missionaries and we think yeah that's huge it's huge in all the temptations of sin every one of us will go through this week to say I want to consider myself first first not the other it's a constant it is, this is why, this is one, here's, here, here's my answer to one of the reasons why does God call us to saving faith, cause us to be born again, and then leave us in this sinful, broken world? Well, I'm sorry, there's two, three, four answers just came to my head. But one of them is he, something's happening in us that he's doing for eternity as it's working out, an eternal weight of glory. But now, the other is, what is happening in being conformed to Christ as you see Scripture and commandments and as a believer now? I'm saved, I'm in Christ, and what does it do? It brings up our sin. But when you, what do you look to just to do better? Or God, I can see how I just sinned because 
I clearly was not having my heart and my hope and my trust set upon your promise to me. And then we realize, I say, oh, confess your sins. He's faithful, righteous in Jesus Christ to forgive us. And, and you say, look at that, your promise. And that's why the word of God and Bible time and prayer and fellowship in the church and on and on are so crucial to our lives. We are so frail and get our minds off the gospel so easily as our sin rises up. So this week, pray as you wake up every morning. Say, Lord, let me relish your promises to me. Let me relish your promises that I'm seeing throughout all your commands to me as your child through the Lord Jesus. And watch how he works by the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for such a gift as your son that you did send him. And thus, as you had your apostle Paul write, how shall you not also by Jesus freely give to us all things? What a promise. We love you for it. And in our closing time here, may, may you by the Spirit causing our hearts to rise up, be glorified to the glory of Jesus.